Good morning. Good to see you guys. Uh, yeah, as, as Jen mentioned, about 30 of uh, the men are up at the uh, men's retreat right now and uh, spent some time, we, we spent some time with them this weekend. It was amazing. Uh, it's going to be a blessing to uh, our families. It's going to be a blessing to our church. It's going to be a blessing to our city, the work that God is working in them and through them. Uh, so uh, grateful for what, what's going on there in our church body, even now as we gather here. So uh, this morning, it is my joy and privilege to open up the word of God with you. We're in Exodus chapter one. If you have a Bible, you can begin to work your way there. I'll read it. Um, Exodus is a narrative story of the ongoing story of God. And because it's narrative for this series, we normally preach through the uh, English Standard Version, the ESV, uh, but we've switched to the NIV for this series because the NIV will translate a narrative story, a little bit more dynamic for us to enter into it. So that's the whole reason why people have asked me, like, why did you switch the Bibles? Something wrong? No, I'm not liberal. I'm not conservative. Like, I just, I, I just want to... I just want to read this Bible. So with that, um, with that, I'll go ahead and read it. And I would always ask you to listen carefully. This is God's word. Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. It says, These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, the descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. This is the word of the Lord. You got it. Let me pray. Lord, I do pray that now that the meditations of our hearts... The words of my lips would be honoring and pleasing to you. What we have not, you'd give us. What we are not, you'd make us for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to start before we jump into that uh, with a question. Uh, and the question, well, it's actually two questions. Uh, what is the best movie trilogy of all time? Okay, so, th- so think about that. And then the second follow-up question to that is, why is it Back to the Future? Um, <laughs> You might disagree, but you're wrong. Uh, Back to the Future, I was here for it, man. I, I, love, the, I love me some Back to the Future, 1985. So, so some of you are too young for that. So think Stranger Things. That's how we were wearing our clothes and rolling around. But 1985, watching this movie, I, I love the idea of time travel and the DeLorean and all that stuff. And, and I, I just remember watching that. I was 10 years old, so you could do the math. Uh, and uh, when, when, when everything wrapped up and the McFly family was better off than when it begun, uh, and uh, Marty had, had got the girl Jennifer and the Toyota truck, and it was, it was all good. And I thought, man, this was great. But then all of a sudden, the electric crash of, uh, of the DeLorean coming in out of nowhere, comes sliding into the driveway, and uh, uh, Doc Brown gets out, and he's dressed as how we were supposed to be dressing in 2015, by the way, uh, in this really crazy outfit. And he's like, something's wrong. I've got to take you to the future. And, and they get in and they take off and, and I, I was like oh my I, I, this, this next one's going to be in the future I'm here for it I can't wait for it but, but back then apparently they didn't just crank out movies all the time so it wasn't until 1990 five years later and I'm a sophomore in high school that 
that it, that it comes out. Uh, Back to the Future 2. And so I remember the day it came out. I rode my bike, not home after school, directly to the movie theater. I didn't tell my parents. I didn't say. I just went and bought a ticket for myself and sat there and loved all of it. Like, I, it, was, it was amazing. And so I just, I was like, man, this is, this is 2015. Awesome. Flying cars. Great. Hoverboards. Amazing. I, I'm, I'm here for it. Um, and so I'm a little disappointed uh, that we're past that. Um, but uh, some of you know I, I like to ride my electric longboard around town and even to church sometimes. 100% that's because of Back to the Future 2. <laughs> it's the closest thing I could get to a hoverboard. And you're like, okay, so what in the world does this have to do with Exodus chapter 1? How, how does this... I'm glad you asked that because... Uh, when we start this series, we started last week through a kind of a survey, but uh, in Exodus chapter 1, verse 1, we're reading from the NIV, but the Hebrew has what's called a coordinating conjunction. We simply would normally translate that as and. So, so the, the English translators thought that's a poor way to start a book, and. But, but the, what, we, what it shows us immediately is that the story of God is unfolding. It's connected to something. It's, this, this story isn't just an isolation, isolated event, but, but it, it is part of the unfolding story of God. And so specifically part of the Pentateuch. Penta means five in Hebrew. Tuch means book of the five books of Moses. So we have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And uh, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers all start with and. Like this is going on. Now, the, the other thing is that the, immediately the verse 1 is a, a direct quote from Genesis 46.8. So, so we've seen these words before if we were continuing in the story. Now, what does that have to do with Back to the Future? If you were, had never seen it before uh, and uh, you were coming over to my house and I was about to watch my favorite one, Back to the Future Two, and I said, you haven't seen this before? And he said, no. I, I would say, well, we really need to go back to one so, so you can get some context. Because um, you just have to do it in the right order. And you said, no, 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 let's just watch two. And I said, okay, well, th- then we at least need to stop. And I need to explain some things about a flux capacitor and uh, I, 1.21 gigawatts. And, and this is very important numbers. And you need to understand uh, about who Biff Tannen is and Marty McFly and, and Doc Brown. You need to understand all these things or else this is just not going to make sense to you. This, there's some context here. And so this is exactly what uh, the author of Exodus chapter 1 is, is, is wanting us to do. He wants us to think and remember where we've been. That the story of God has a past, a, a present, and a future. And in fact, in our passage, it doesn't leap off the page to us, but we, we begin to see that, they, that the Israelites at this time have a problem. And it's a problem that we share. And the problem is that it's so easy for us to forget that we are part of a much bigger story. That, that uh, the little story of our lives is not all-encompassing. Because you and I as temporal, finite being, beings, it's just so easy for us to get locked into the moment, right? Like, uh, for good or for bad. Like, my day can be ruined by something that happens in the morning, and I'll just be like, oh my gosh, this is so bad, this is so bad. And, and I can just lose the narrative that, that there's an eternal arc that, that my life has been brought up into in this. And, and the Israelites ha- have the same problem. They have it on repeat, 
It's our problem. It's, it's their problem. And, and we're going to see that it's a problem for them in, in even this passage here. But, but uh, this is going to remind us that we are part of a story that has a past, a present, and a future. Exodus 1 through 7, chapter 1, verses 1 through 7 is, is kind of a, a mileage marker showing how far we've come. But also a signpost saying, hey, this story is still going somewhere. So, so we, let's, let's just take a, a few moments this morning to understand where we've been. Now, the best way to kind of understand the, the biblical narrative arc throughout the Bible is through the covenants. God making covenants with creation, making covenants with his people. Everything kind of hangs on those things. And as you track through the covenants, there's six or seven, depending on how, how scholars determine whether or not one is a covenant or not. There's six or seven covenants, and, and they move along. And these are the backbone of Scripture. Now, four of them are going to be in the first two books of the Bible, Genesis and Exodus. So this is really foundational stuff for us. So if we were to go all the way back to Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, God makes a covenant with creation. And in in chapter 1, verse 28, it it says that God uh, blessed the earth and and, uh, then commanded it to be fruitful and multiply. In fact, in in our our chapter today, verse 7 kind of echoes that. Remember? The the Israelites were fruitful. They multiplied. There there was this echo of the first covenant of creation God made. But then the next one is the Noah, Noahic covenant, the covenant with Noah after the flood and God preserves a remnant, preserves a family through the ark, which by the way, spoiler alert for Rick next week, the, the, the same word for the ark is what Moses gets put in in the river. Uh, God preserves the family through the ark and afterwards God says, I'm never going to destroy the world again in judgment uh, through the flood. And I'm I'm going to give you a sign and a symbol of this covenant. You all know what it is, right? Rainbow. There you go. That's our symbol, by the way. So um, it gives them a rainbow. Like when you see the rainbow, you remember God's promises. The covenants are God's promises. Now, now the big one and the one that really is flowing into this moment uh, is in, in Genesis chapter 12. I'll, I'll turn there. Genesis chapter 12, uh, starting in verse 1. It says, the Lord had said to Abram. Now, who's Abram? Abram is just this random guy. There's actually nothing. He's an older guy. There was nothing in his character. There was nothing in his life. There was nothing in his worship. He was a pagan worshiping, idol worshiping guy in a land called Ur, far away. Uh, There was nothing good in him. But what we see is something that's going to begin to become a pattern throughout the Bible. Just out of the sheer sovereign mercy and grace of God, he comes to Abram and he calls him into his presence, into his family And he begins to make a covenant with Abram. Says the Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land I will show you and I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So God comes to this guy who has no idea who he is, no idea who, no one on earth knows who God is at this point. But God, in his plan of salvation to redeem and rescue the world, calls Abram out. And Abram's already an old man. His wife's already well past childbearing age. And he makes these promises. 
And there's three of them. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you people. And I'm going to, through you, bring redemption to the whole world. You're going to be a blessing to the whole world. So this promise is just foundational to the rest of the Bible. Now, now, covenants can be either conditional or unconditional. Conditional meaning uh, when two parties get into a, a contract together, like you hold up your end and I will hold up my end. And, and there's different covenants throughout the Bible between people and, and nations and, and so on and so forth. And so the question then becomes, is this a conditional covenant? Is God going to bless the nations through Abram if, if they do their part? Well, in chapter 15, we, we, we learn that this is, an actual, this is an unconditional covenant because here's what happens in chapter 15. It's a really interesting scene. There's a covenant ceremony. And back in the ancient Near East, part of that would be called cutting a covenant. And so they would make a, a series of sacrifices and they would basically over the dead bodies of the animals that they would create a path and they would take hand in hand and they'd walk through the path and they'd say, whatever happens to these animals, may it happen to us if either one of us breaks this covenant. Well, Abraham doesn't go on the covenant walk. God puts him into a deep, deep sleep. And then there's this real strange scene where, where, where God uh, has the, the animals cut up and God takes the walk. And it's just showing us in the world like this is an unconditional covenant. Abram, regardless of what your descendants are going to do to mess this thing up, I'm going to keep the covenant. And Abram, when your descendants do mess it up, and in fact the rest of the Bible is the story of us messing it up. Uh, when, When they do mess it up, what happens to these animals is going to happen to me. So, so it points to Jesus. It's an unconditional covenant. It's real. It's huge. And then in 17, he gives uh, uh, Abram the, the covenant sign. Remember, Noah got a sign. And now he gives Abram the covenant, Abraham the covenant sign. Anyone know what that is? Circumcision. Yes, exactly. Abram's like, uh, Noah got a rainbow. <laughs> like, can we... Can we can we come up with a secret handshake or one ring to rule them all? Like, now circumcision. But it becomes this sign and this seal of, of God being in a covenant with his people. Now, the rest of Genesis is going to answer the question, how is this going to happen? And, and really, it's impossible situation after impossible situation after impossible situation. Uh, first, it's, it's Abram and Sarah well past their childbearing years. And he says, I'm going to bless you. You're gonna, a great nation is going to come through you. And they're like, how is it going to happen? And they wait and they wait and they wait. And they're like, I know God helps those who help themselves. And, and so uh, Sarah's like, take my maidservant. That's maybe what God meant. And he's like, okay. And then so that doesn't work out. And, and eventually, just in spite of themselves, God fulfills the promise and Isaac is born. And then uh, we have this, this repeatedly uh, these, these challenges like there's barrenness and Rebecca and Rachel. There's, there, there's constant um, betrayal and sin like in every possible way. They're trying to ruin the plan of God and God is still coming through. And we, we see that God is the God of the impossible. And he makes what seems impossible possible through his sovereign providence working through history. And then we get into the story of, of Joseph. He, his brothers uh, sell him into slavery. 
And it seems all is lost. And he gets taken down to Egypt. And, and God raises him up and then takes him down. And, and then a famine comes on the land. And, and God raises Joseph up again to the second in, in command over all of Egypt. And, and through the wisdom that God has given Joseph, he uh, brings the family of God, the, the 70 that we read about in, in Exodus chapter 1, verse 1, into the land. But before he does that, Jacob uh, is, ha- has to leave. Jacob, the old patriarch, has to leave the land and, and go down. So God shows up to Jacob and reminds Jacob of the promises and the presence of God. He, he, he promises Jacob three things in, in ex- Genesis 46. I'll pick it up in verse 2. It says, And God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob. So Israel and Jacob, same person. <laughs> Jacob, Jacob, here I am, he replied. I am God, the God of your father. He said, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. So so God says to Jacob, you can go down. I'm going to be with you. And when you're down there in Egypt, I'm going to bless you and make a great nation out of your people there. And I will bring you back. And he says, but, but Joseph will close your eyes. Meaning, it's not going to be your generation, Jacob. But, but eventually, I will bring my people back into the land. It's, eventually, I will fulfill the promises. And so, back to our passage, we see something happening here. We see that the promises of God's presence, God's blessing and multiplication, and then God's bringing them into the land, two of the three are happening. But the question is, how are they going to get back into the land? And so we read in verse 6, now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. And I mean, you might just have a, a few millimeters gap between six and seven in your Bible, but, but that is a huge gap. There are possibly hundreds of years gap there. there is, there's this tension that's introduced in the story again, like, well, what's going to happen to the promises of God? Well, what's going to happen to the presence of God? Like, when a patriarch dies, like, everything hangs in the balance. And in verse seven, we see that God has been fulfilling his promise. See, we, we forget God's promises, but God never forgets. Look at verse 7. It says, but the Israelites, and notice the adjectives here. They just start piling on top of each other. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Just redundancy after redundancy after redundancy. But what, what, what the author is showing us is that, that it wasn't just like, hey, they, they, their families were blessed. This is supernatural. This is, uh, this is uh, miraculous. This is uh, a testimony that God has been present with them in Egypt, and he is fulfilling his promises, and he's just piling on. And, and again, it's an echo of Genesis chapter 1, exceedingly fruitful, blessed, blessed. Now, now here's the deal though. Verse 7 is a sign of, of God's presence and promise, but it's also a warning. It's also a warning. In the, in the first two chapters of Exodus, no one has any real awareness of, any, uh, of God at all, except for Shifra and Pua, we'll see. The people have forgotten the presence and the promise of God. 
And we have to ask the question, why? Why have they forgotten the presence and the promise of God? Clearly God has been present uh, and clearly God is fulfilling his promise to them. They're, they're being multiplied, but, but they've forgotten the presence and promise of God. You say, well, well maybe, maybe it's because they're slavery, but that hasn't happened yet. In fact, that doesn't happen until verse 8. That's, that's late in the story, actually. So, so sometimes people are like, well, um, because there's pain and suffering in the world, I, I just can't believe in or trust in a God. That, that's true. But, but most, most times, my, my experience as a pastor who's walked with a lot of people through a lot of tears, had a lot of struggles, had a lot of loss, had a lot of death, had a lot of suffering. In those moments, what you hear is uh, maybe confusion. Maybe you hear doubt. Maybe you hear anger. Maybe you hear um, just questioning God. In fact, all the things that we see in the Bible, in the book of Psalms, and even into Jesus on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's all true, but, but as you go deeper into it, pain is, is, is rarely the, the cause of, of forgetting the presence and promises of God. Really, it's a, it's a wake-up call. Like, for example, this week has been just a, a brutal week for some of my close friends. Um, so on Thursday, my, my former boss with Pioneers, he... Uh, had a sudden death arrhythmia, heart stopped. Uh, his wife kept him alive for 15 minutes before they were able to get him to the hospital. Uh, he is alive. He's in the ICU, but like that, that was just tragic. Uh, my friend that's an actually nine pastor up in Fort Collins, his 18-year-old son died of cancer on Friday. Uh, my other friend lives in Punta Gorda, Florida, and it, which was the epicenter of the hurricane coming through there. And in conversation with them, just the brokenness, the, the hardship of all that. But, but there has also been a consistent theme, a, a constant turning to God, a constant pleading for the mercy of God, pleading for the grace of God. The pain and suffering didn't drive them away from God. It drove them to God. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He says, pain insists upon being attended to. Thank you, Grace. <laughs> Pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. In fact, if we were to go around and share our faith journey, one of the consistent threads in that in all of our stories would be there was this season, there was this moment, there was this sharp pain in my life, but but that was the moment that I woke up. That was the moment that I came to God. And I would never want to go through it again. And I didn't like going through it at the time. But it has made me uh, and developed me more into the image of Christ than anything else in my life. That, that would just be consistent. It's possible to walk away from God from pain. But it's not, it's not the most probable thing. So then what is it? Why have they forgotten the presence and the promises of God? And the danger to us, far more than the pain and suffering in this world, is our prosperity. Prosperity is a huge danger to our souls. Because in prosperity, it's just easy to just go with the flow. In prosperity, it's, just, it's really hard to just consistently remind yourself of the presence and promise of God because life is good. 
In pain, when we have, are surrounded by biblical community, we, we, we're very good at holding one another up, praying for each other. We're very good at just reminding one another of the presence and promises of God. But what about our prosperity? And then you start to see why Jesus would talk about prosperity so much as a danger to us. And in 2022, in Parker, Colorado, one of the most prosperous places in the history of the world, there's a real blessing and a real danger to our souls in the midst of prosperity. Because again, even in biblical community, we'll we'll remind each other of God's presence and promise and, and pain. But what about in prosperity, right? Like, hey, nice new house. Sweet new ride. Don't forget about the presences and promises of God. Like you just sound like a killjoy at that point. Like, dude, okay, we get it. You're judging me for having, driving a nice car. No, I hope you have a nice car. I hope you have a beautiful house. But just know, it's difficult to remember the presence and promises of God. So here's, here's the thing that's going on with Israel. The implication in verse 7 is, as they're blessing, that they're, they're, there's many generations that have gone by. And so one generation has come up and, and God has blessed them and they've got more land. And they've built their houses. They've built their communities. They've built their, their lives together and, and the blessings just keep coming and they just keep coming and they just keep coming. So God had three promises to Jacob. You'll go down there. I'll be with you. I'll multiply you and I will bring you back. John Calvin said, If it wasn't for the slavery that we're going to see next week coming in verse 8, if it wasn't for the slavery, it's possible that the promises of God could have been buried in the sands of Egypt with the people of God. The idea is, and we don't want to leave this. Life is good. We we don't even, like, that was our grandparents' generation that, that wanted to go back to some weird land. We're good here. And so in God's providence and his mercy and his grace and his, his fulfillment of his promises, he's going to unleash and allow pain to basically bring them back in. So, but what do we do that? How do we, how do we respond? Do, do we look for pain? Absolutely not. Like, I don't, I don't think we need to run from pain, but in a broken world, the pain will find us, okay? So, so we don't need to go look for pain. But I do think in in a prosperous situation, we need to exercise the spiritual discipline of remembering. Hannah, hook me up. (laughs) We must practice the spiritual discipline of remembering. Now, now you may not think of this as a spiritual discipline, but but it, it very much is. For, for, your, for your joy, for God's glory, for your perseverance in the faith, you, you must practice a, a spiritual discipline of remembering. What, what does that look like? Uh, ah, it looks like many w- ways, but I'll, I'll just list four of them here. First of all, we remember the promises of, and presence of God through the Word of God. And, and so this is why we uh, dig into this. This is why it's in our liturgy and it's built out of our songs. This is why we proclaim the word. But, but hopefully, like, like Jesus said in Matthew 4, 4, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He says we live on this. And so we would spend time just remembering the promises because we forget. Like so many times people are like, well, I read the Bible once and, and that wasn't for me. I'm like, well... Because we we need to come back and continue to feed upon the word of God. Number two, we remember the presence and promises of God together in community. 
together in community. Now, the rest of these kind of flow out of me. But, but the whole book of, point of the book of Hebrews is that our perseverance in the faith is a community project. It's not on you. It's, it's coming together. So, so when you gather in your core group or your gospel community or on Sunday morning, uh, one of the reasons we love this room is, is just the natural light. Because it's not just you and God in a, in a dark room. It's, it's the people of God on your left and right. They, they've been rescued and redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And, and you're, you remember their story and you get to know their story and you're like, yes, God keeps his promises. Yes, God is with us. And then so that rolls into a, a, a third one. We remember the promises and presences of God as we worship together. Like, like worship in the Bible, there are, there are moments where, where we worship one-on-one, but by and large, the prescription for worship is the people of God coming together, proclaiming the excellencies of Him who brought us out of darkness into light. And so we worship together. This is why we want to see each other worship. This is why we want to uh, hear each other worship. That's why we want to see the words on the screen and just uh, as we sing the songs, even if we're having a, a terrible time, even if we're wrestling with doubt, we're proclaiming through song what's ultimately true to our hearts. And finally, we remember the promises and the presence of God each week as we participate in this table of communion together. Now, I know other churches will have different ideas of how often you should do this. They'll say, well, you shouldn't do it every week. It'll just become a religious habit, you know, once a month. I'm like, that's insane. I would do this every day if I could. Like every day I need to be reminded Christ died for me. He bled for me. And my life is part of a bigger story. And I need to align my life with that. So we must practice the spiritual discipline of remembering for our joy, for our perseverance, for God's glory. Amen? Amen. Let me go ahead and pray for us as we come to this table. Father, thank you for your word to us this morning. Lord, we do praise you for the blessings, um, the fruitfulness, the, the many ways that you have poured out abundance into our lives, Lord, and we don't want to take any of that for granted. But Lord, I pray that our prosperity would not rob us of our joy in you, our remembering your presence and your promises in our lives, our remembering that our life is not just this moment, but it's eternal. And so let us be a people, Lord, that gather together, that worship together, that commune together, that pour over the word together so that we might feel your presence and remember your promise this week. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.